Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Tani Fedotova, and today my guest is Major Aliana Deem. I'm going to go ahead and let you introduce yourself. We're sitting in D.C. in the hotel. We presented today at our panel at the Officer Women Leadership Symposium, and we talked about innovation and technology and disruptive ideas. Welcome to the Blue Grid Podcast, Major Alina Deem. Well, thank you for having me. First of all, I love that you're doing this, and I've told you that a million times. And so I think this uh, whole Blue Grit podcast for the Air Force is amazing, and I'm so proud to be friends with you and also just to know that you're doing this. Thank you so much. But yes, I'm Major Aliyah Nadim. I'm actually in the Air Force Reserves, but I am usually do a lot of time active. And I'm currently at J32 right now doing Operations Intel, and then I'll be moving to Capitol Hill for a fellowship this summer. Right. And so for all the listeners, we actually are re-recording this interview because although we loved the content the first time we did it, I didn't love the quality and I just really wanted to give it a fair shot because it was just such a wonderful story. So I'm going to start with just asking about your career. You had an unusual career. So tell me about why you joined the Air Force and then how long you've been and what did you do in the Air Force? Yeah, so... I do have a little bit of an unusual career. I've had a few um, AFSCs, but I, so how I really got to join the Air Force is it's a very long story, but I'll try to, I'll try to make it short. Um, We have all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So 9-11 happens and I'm in high school and I'm a junior. And just like everybody else, I see the Twin Towers go down and I was in high school and I grew up in Ohio and I remember just everybody was saying so many crazy things. People couldn't distinguish between a terrorist, a Muslim, someone from the Middle East. Everyone was sort of lumped together. Anyone from the Middle East was, you know, automatically a terrorist. If you were a Muslim, you're a terrorist. There just wasn't good connotations with that. And coming to to, to look at myself and go, I, I think I'm Arab. I think I'm Middle Eastern. I know that My family that I know of, we're good people and we love America. So I I need to go help. First of all, people don't understand the culture of the Middle East. And also at the time, there wasn't the language. You know, I I could speak Arabic. And so I said, I'm going to go join and help. And I was naive. I thought I was just going to go join and I was going to be off deploying right away, not realizing you have to go through basic training, tech school, there's a lot more to it. So you were ready. I, yeah, I was I was ready to go. I was <laughs> yeah. a junior in high school and 
I basically enlisted my junior year and then waited to go to basic training. Mm -hmm. And you wanted to become security forces, correct, if I remember? I did, yeah. So I wanted to become security forces because, so I went to the recruiter and I said, what deploys, what's the most crew field that deploys the most? And at the time she said, well, security forces. And I said, well, that's what I want to do. And she's like, are you sure? And is there anything else you want to do? And I'm like, nope. I want to do security forces. So I I joined security forces. I honestly had no idea what I was doing, but I was just naive and just thought I could go help to a, a situation and join the Air Force. And after you became security forces member? So after security forces, I actually, I learned a lot in security forces. I was enlisted. I was a senior airman. And I learned a lot and I said, you know what, I think I think I want to stay. I think I, I think I can do this. So I ended up applying for an ROTC scholarship and I was stationed at Kirtland as a cop and I ended up getting picked up for school on ROTC scholarship at the University of New Mexico. So I commissioned into OSI and I did that for three and a half years doing fraud. And then I was forced to cross train. I crossed into Intel. And so I've actually been all those three career fields. And then on top of that, when I became a reservist, I also was a GS employee as well. So I feel like I've seen a lot in the Air Force from enlisted, from a civilian, and then also as an officer. Mm-hmm. And your background is very interesting. You are part Arabic, yes. part, part American. Yes. I'll just jump right into it. Tell me about you growing up and what was that like? Yeah, so I definitely had an unusual childhood. I grew up two parents. Uh, my father was Muslim and my mother was Catholic. And I just thought that everybody went to two churches. So I went to a church and then I went to a mosque. And I thought that's what everybody did. So I had a really normal childhood. I was born in Toledo, Ohio. Like everybody else, grew up in McDonald's, Nintendo, video games. And I think the only difference is just that my parents were from two different backgrounds. So my mom's American and she's from Ohio. And then my dad was from Iraq. And then he came over to the U.S. to migrate, really to avoid the war under Saddam Hussein, having to enlist in the military, and then also to come to university here. And so my parents met, they, they fell in love. And I think they thought maybe love conquers all. And so they ended up getting married. But I think for a moment in time, it did conquer all. You have a a Muslim and a Catholic get married. You know, I mean, yeah. So they get married. They have me and they have my sister. I think what happened is my dad really struggled with some of the cultural differences in the U.S. So my dad made some some pretty poor choices. So when I was about eight years old, I think my dad was really struggling with me and my sister being raised as females in the U.S. culture. So he didn't like that my mom worked. He really wanted her to stay at home because in his culture, women stayed home. There's no daycare. That is your that is your role as a woman. And that's just culturally. Growing up, did you witness lots of disagreements between the two of them regarding her ability to work or kind of be more secular? Yeah, there was definitely a lot of arguments. And I remember when you're young, you don't really understand what's exactly going on, but you can feel the friction. And so I do remember those contentious points in the house. I still would consider my childhood good. 
and normal quote-unquote yeah quote-unquote normal like no- mm. nothing unusual about it until Un- yeah until my dad essentially tells my mom that his mother in iraq is very sick and he would like to go back and visit and he'd like to take the girls over there to see her because she could be dying i just remember that i was going to be out of school <laughs> so i was like yeah, if we can get to go to Iraq to visit my dad's grandma, that means I don't have to do like homework. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, Cause you're a kid, you're, you know, yeah. eight years old, right? Yeah. That's what I remember. And so I just knew we were going on a trip to Iraq to see my dad's mother who I hadn't met. And, and you've never been to Iraq up until that no. point? No. So we, we, as a family, me and my sister, mom and dad, we, we, we go to Iraq and it's a whole nother world, right? For me, I meet family that I never knew that I had. Everyone is really excited that we're there. It really, for the most part, was a really good experience. I remember initially being just very happy and just exciting that we were in like a new place. But then it just really took a dark turn. So the last night that we're there, we're going to fly back to the U.S. My dad come. He wakes me and my sister up. So we were all sleeping together. We've had an amazing trip. But the one thing I, I will point out is my grandmother probably wasn't as sick as my dad alluded to and I do remember my mom talking about that saying yeah her knee is injured but she's not like on her deathbed and so I do remember that coming up but you're a kid you don't right I don't really know right you didn't give it too much thought obviously no 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 no. I mean I was just like okay grandma's got you know when you're a kid you're like grandma's sick got a broken knee indifferent right right and I remember my dad coming to wake me and my sister up And said, hey, let's go get some candy and ice cream. And I was like, yes. You're eight. You're like, "Uh, ice cream at midnight? I'm in. So he's like, well, we have to go to your aunt's house to go get it. And we're like, yeah, sure, whatever. So we pack up in the car. And I remember we drove to my aunt's house. Now, at this time, I don't speak any Arabic. I only speak English. And then they speak Arabic. So my dad's sort of kind of like our translator. So we go to my aunt's house. And I do remember like we had ice cream, we had candy. It was, it was a really good time. And then all of a sudden I realized my dad's not there. You're a kid. Imagine you're just playing, you're having fun. And then you're like, wait a minute, where, where's my dad? And I'm like, okay, my sister's here. I don't know these people. Like I just met them. They're my family, but I don't, I don't know who they are. Who are these people? And so I'm like, where's my dad? And they're speaking to me in Arabic. And I just keep saying like, where's my dad? And then my sister starts crying. So my sister's four years younger than me. So she's about three or four years old. She starts to cry. And normally, like, I was would never comfort my sister, right? She's like public enemy number one in the house, right? And I remember thinking, oh, my God, she's crying and I need to help her. And so then I got scared. I got really scared. And I was just like, where's my dad? Like, where? I want my mom. I want my dad. And they were just like, they kept speaking in like I have no idea what they're saying and so I pretty much cried myself to sleep that night me and my sister together and we woke up the next morning and and my dad still wasn't there so (laughs) the next morning we wake up and I'm asking and I they're bringing me food to eat and I'm just like no I, I just where is my dad where's my mom and so later that evening my dad does end up showing up and it's like it's like a sigh of relief you Mm -hmm. know like okay where you know like so 
my dad comes up and he's like, Hey, I want to talk to you and your sister. I know you guys are upset. And so I remember we, we go upstairs and we were overlooking where I lived. It actually oversaw Mustashville Saddam, which is hospital of Saddam. Everything was named after Saddam at that time. (laughs) I remember we were overlooking that and we were in this room in this open window and my dad saying that, you know, your mom, your mom left you guys. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, she just, she, she doesn't want to be with you guys. You guys are really difficult. Mm. And so um, this is going to sound really stupid. When I was younger and I remember going to school, I would forget to brush my teeth. <laughs> so my mom would have to make a list for me of like, need to brush your teeth in the morning. Right. And like, I don't know why I was a gross kid, but, but I was, and she just was really adamant about me brushing my teeth. And so now back in this moment with my dad, he's telling me that my, my mom doesn't want to be with us because we're difficult. And I'm like, well, dad, I'll, I mean, I'll brush my teeth. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't, you know, like, I'm sorry. I didn't brush, you know, I'm, I, and I just remember the feeling of it's just like an emptiness. I, I can't even really describe. You're like, well, what am I going to do? You're eight years old and you're like, well, what am I going to do? Like what? I don't have a mom now. Like what, what happens next? And I, I, yeah, it was just, mm-hmm. is awful. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. And my dad ends up, leaving he says he can't stay and you know i'm with my sister and at this point like days and weeks go by and you with your sister i'm with my sister at my aunt's house Mm -hmm. and this is my my dad's sister essentially and at this point like i'm not eating i just i don't know what to do and i'm starting to come out a little bit more with the family but not much and i remember me and my sister were upstairs and i hear all this commotion downstairs, I hear like screaming and it's my mom. She's like, Aaliyah, Aisha, she's screaming. And I'm like, oh my God, she's here. Like, mm-hmm. holy crap. Mm-hmm. And so. And this is days or weeks this after? This is days, weeks. And I, I, I honestly don't remember. Mm-hmm. And so I remember I run down, like I left my sister <laughs> upstairs and I, I ran downstairs and there my mom was. I don't know why but I knew she was there because I could smell her, and I I don't know that like I, it was just a weird feeling. I don't know like there's if this there's like a mother child bond where you can mm-hmm. sort of like smell your mother, but like I just I could just smell her. I was like mm-hmm. I, I knew she was mm-hmm. there, and so we were just reunited. And my sister and her, we were all reunited. My dad wasn't there. I just remember her saying, "You guys are coming with me. We're gonna go back to your grandparents' house," and that's where we had initially been staying at the night before we left. And she's like, "You guys are coming with me." And so I just felt relief, like, okay, you know, whew, you're going to be safe. We're going to, I'm going to be safe. It's going to be good. I don't know what's going on now, but I'm with my mom. So we, we drive back to my grandmother's house. I could tell tension was hot. People were like, why is Aaliyah, Aisha and her mom all together? They shouldn't all be together. Mm-hmm. What's going on? So I guess from what my mom has told me is she basically convinced one of my dad's brothers, one of my uncle's to take her to us and she really said you're a father how would you like it if you weren't with your daughters and so he he defied my dad which is not good especially in that culture Mm -hmm. you know so there was probably some consequences there my dad ends up coming 
it's this big commotion. Parents are screaming at each other. The whole family's out. It's just awful. And I'm just like holding on to my mother. My dad basically tells her, you have to leave. Like you have to leave Iraq. Like you, you can't stay here. Mm-hmm. You, you need to go. And she's like, I'm not leaving without my daughters. The whole family's listening into this. She's like, I'm, I'm not leaving. And he's like, no, you, you, you know, you will be forced to go. And so she does, she doesn't have any rights there. You know I mean? She's mm-hmm. not, mm-hmm. you're in Iraq. You know, right. this is under Saddam Hussein's. You're like, she can't, this isn't like America. She can call the police and the police are going to help her. It's just not going to work like that. He tells her you can only take one. In my head, I'm like, okay, well, I'm clearly going. You know, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not getting left behind here. She starts, she starts crying, and she's like, you know, why are you making me, why, why are you making me choose? And he's like, you need to pick one now and go. She picks up my sister, and she just starts crying. One of his brothers pulled up the car, and she got in the car, and I didn't see her again. And that was probably the hardest moment of my life. You know, I'm 35 now, but that was probably the hardest moment mm-hmm. in my life to, to, to be left behind. What did you think was going to happen? I don't know. I just felt, I felt scared. I felt alone. I had no idea. It's just an awful feeling. Mm-hmm. Did you hope that she'd come back for you? Yeah, I guess I at that moment I didn't think that because I I just saw her leaving. I was really angry at my dad. Why did you make her leave? Why am I here by myself? I just could not comprehend it. It's so uncomparable, you know. It's 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 like mm-hmm. hard to like imagine. So I just started my life as an Iraqi girl. I went to school. I lived under Saddam Hussein's regime and just carried on if you will with with life the best way that I knew how it wasn't easy it wasn't what I'd hoped for myself especially as an eight-year-old I went to school I for lack of better words became a, a you know I, I had to practice in the Muslim culture I had to cover myself up I had to fit into society of Iraqi culture what was the most difficult part about living in Iraq by yourself because the father also left right My father ended up staying, so it was basically me and my father in Iraq and then my mother and my sister in the U.S. Okay. The most difficult part was just sort of navigating. There's a few things. You're in a whole brand new culture. It's navigating that culture, being eight years old without a mother. So you're like, who do I go to if I, you know, if if you want anything? You don't know who the right person is. And my my dad wasn't going to be there to sort of like take care of me. And then... There's also this empty feeling that you have that you're not with your family. Like you, you just met these people and you have you have nobody. You feel like you're just all alone. Um, and I was just I was eight years old at the time, so I didn't I didn't know. And then going to school was hard for me. I really struggled in school because I had to learn Arabic. You know, like I I had to like learn Arabic. And in their schools, they hit you. So if like you don't. You know, if you don't know the answer, you don't raise your hand. You can't just, like, guess an answer. Like, you, you get hit. And lots of memorization. And so I had to I – remember, I remember I hated school because I was so scared to get hit because um, I got hit, you know, if I didn't know the answer. And so school school was a big thing. Sort of being, like, 
best way to describe is like you're kind of homeless. Like people try to be your, people will try to step in and be your mother, but it's just temporary. Mm-hmm. Did you have friends? I did. Friends, yeah. I, I do remember friends from school, but we weren't allowed to socialize with them like outside of school because people were afraid of Saddam Hussein. So like people were afraid that if you said something bad, you know, like that, that would get back to the government. So everybody was like sort of scared. If you weren't family, you didn't really hang out with other people because you just didn't know who you could trust because that was just the era. There was only like two TV stations, you know, in Iraq. So I just remember that was it. I remember they would shut off our electricity and our water, which is funny because they're still struggling with that today. Your whole life is just different, mm-hmm. you know. You only go to school till noon. That's it. And then, you know, you go back home. And I was expected to quit at eighth grade. I was also expected to marry my cousin. And wow. that was, like, just going to be sort of accepted. Did you meet your cousin? Yeah. Yeah, I used to, I used to play with him. And you knew that you were going to be married eventually? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is sort of like, hey, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna marry your cousin. Yeah, that's what my life became growing up in the Middle East. I think to not having freedom. Here in America, we talk about freedom a lot, and it, how important it is. And and I agree, it's it's very important. And I think I didn't realize what freedom really was until I didn't have it. And living in Iraq at that time did not have a lot of freedom. I mean, I couldn't even go probably to like the ice cream store by myself unless I had a male with me or a cousin or a family member, right? Mm-hmm. So there's all these differences. There was no freedom, especially as a female. I was very limited and I could feel that as a child, my limitations. Just how stifling it was. Yeah. And I think, you know, because I, I was born here and, I, you know, I grew up here until I was about eight years old. So I knew, I knew what life was like in America. So I had something to compare it to. Right. versus some of my family members who were grown up in Iraq their whole life. They had nothing to compare it to. This was just this was just life. This was life the way it was in Iraq. What was your relationship with your dad after all that happened? So it's gotten better. But I will tell you how I got back is really interesting because that ties into the relationship with my dad. By the time that I was there, the Gulf War started. I'm in Iraq as a U.S. citizen, Gulf War starts. And it's scary because now we're at war with the U.S. And here I am a U.S. citizen in their country. Did you understand that? You were pretty little. Did you understand the war or kind of the implications? I did. And part of it's, I don't want to say propaganda, but the two TV stations that we had. Mm. I think that's propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I don't, I'm not sure if that's, but I think that is. But the two TV stations that we had, you know, they'd be talking about every day how these bombings would be happening and how it was America doing it. And so as a kid, I'm like, why, why is America like bombing Iraq? What's going on? Like, I thought America was good. Like, I'm from America, right? And so I was super confused why I was confused about the whole war. Now, as an adult, I understand what was going on. But I remember, because I lived next to a hospital, I remember an American helicopter landed. It was in Mosul, which is northern Iraq, and I remember running up there. And so, like, a whole bunch of kids went to run up to the helicopter when it landed. So, of course, like, the guys, you know, all have preference. So I'm fighting my way through, right? I see this guy. He's wearing a flight suit. He's got the American patch on his arm, and I'm like, I'm Aaliyah. I'm from Toledo, Ohio. You need to take me home. <laughs> and I remember he was like, what? Like, and I'm like, no, I'm from Ohio, but I'm covered up. 
My face is covered. I'm wearing sort of the hijab and stuff. You had the full coverage. Thing full coverage. Time. I mean, you could see my face, but my hair is covered. And he's probably like, what is this? What was going through your mind at that time? Uh, and t- no, you, you're older than eight at that point. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm older than eight. So I'm probably like, uh, like 10, 11. And so I'm like, oh, my God, maybe I'm going to go home. Like, maybe this is it. Maybe I'm going to, maybe they're going to take me home. They're, they're going to realize, like, they need to take me. And he's like, no, <laughs> no. And I'm like yeah you should take me home and so I just remember sort of this like very odd dialogue with this man and I could tell he was confused because I think my English was good for for a kid I definitely knew he was confused but I mean he didn't take me home and so I always tell if there's any pilots listening if you know some little kid in some foreign country tells you they're you know from the U.S. you should just take them home and figure it out later (laughs) um they would have saved me (laughs) so much heartache (laughs) So I remember that happening. After that happening, I remember, I don't know if I'm ever going to get out of here. I just don't know if I'm going to. Yeah. So like I guess started losing hope. Yeah. Yeah. You, you really do. You just kind of go, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it out of here. But what I didn't know, my mom would try to call every time she could, but it's really hard at that time to make a phone call to Iraq and it's super expensive. It's hit or miss. There's no cell phones you know, and time differences. What I didn't know is my mom, when she came back to the U.S., she was working diligently with the FBI and with local authorities to try to get me back. It was the first international kidnapping from Ohio. They considered a kidnapping. The FBI looked into this case, and so they finally got some momentum on it. So essentially, I was gone for four years. I didn't return to the United States until 1995. So that whole time that my mom's been back in the U.S., she's been working with them to try to get me and to get the attention on this case. And so how they got my dad and how they got me back is my dad had businesses in the U.S. So they basically said, you got to come back to the U.S. to take care of some of these business assets or you're going to lose the money. But he decided not to fly into the U.S. because he knew he would probably likely be arrested. So he flew into Canada. Mm -hmm. So my mom had to go pick him up from Canada. And the FBI is following her. They have this whole sting operation. My mom convinces him to stop at a gas station right over the border in the U.S. to get cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And he agrees. And so as soon as he crossed over the U.S. border, he was arrested. Mm -hmm. They basically told him, unless your daughter comes back, You're not getting out of jail. Mm -hmm. My uncle drove me to the Jordanian border. I was met by my mother and officials. I came back home in 1995. So I was about 12 years old at this time. And the pain didn't stop there. That was just the beginning of a long journey. What was it like to meet your mom after four years? The first thing, she'd aged. And oh. I had pictured her, you know, when you're eight, it's mm-hmm. a, I had just pictured her differently. We didn't have like, we couldn't like send pictures or anything mm-hmm. like that. So I literally didn't see her for that time. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, she's, she looks different. And so that was startling. But I remember I was just really happy. I was just really happy to be reunited with her. You said that it wasn't the end of pain. It was just the beginning. What do you mean by that? Um... So, you know, things like, I I remember I I was very awkward around males. 
uh, partly because in the Middle Eastern culture, you don't have a lot of interactions with males unless they're your family members. So I remember I didn't want to like go swimming in a bathing suit around any males, even if it was like a family member. I was just like too scared to go to the swimming pool in a bathing suit. Was it because Iraqi culture scared you or shamed you into staying away from men? Yeah. Boys. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, they, they sort of say like haram, which is, that's not appropriate. It's not a good thing to do to show too much skin. You know, mm-hmm. the modesty is sort of the crown jewel over there. And so it was scary. I felt like if I show my leg too much, wearing shorts was a big deal for me. That was like this whole integration. And then also, you know, I was behind academically. I was supposed to be in sixth grade when I got back. They ended up holding me a grade behind. And I was just embarrassed. My English, my math, they were all just really bad. And I'd have tutors. And I was a bigger kid and a grade behind. It was just hard for me. I just felt so behind in everything. And then I felt a little bit different than everybody else. I didn't have this family picture. You know, I had all these things happen. Then my sister now, I had to get to re-know my sister. She was like a baby. You know, and then my sister was used to being an only child. So there was just a lot of, it was just a lot of things. And my mom was dating somebody else. You know, she'd moved on with her life, but I wasn't ready for that either. Mm -hmm. So I came back to a whole nother world. When I left at eight, it was this way. And then when I came back, it was different. I remember wanting to wear my old clothes. I wanted to go back to when I was eight. So when I came back, I wanted to wear my Mickey Mouse clothes when I was eight. I I, I didn't want to do things differently. I was almost like just like very childlike as as a 12-year-old. Sure, you probably regressed psychologically too. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And how long did it take you to get over that experience? I mean, I don't know if that you actually got over it completely, but in terms of just those basic things like clothing, communication, academic functioning. I probably would say like high school is when it finally all went away. I think grade school was really tough. It took a little bit to get over that. And then I think once I got to high school, things got better because I no longer had to have a tutor. I was really on my own and my English was good. My math, it was on track. I felt really good. But then ironically enough, 9-11 happens in high school. And, you know, then I'm faced with this whole thing again. So I had this terrible experience with Iraq, but the people were amazing there and I learned so much. But then you know, then this whole thing about the Middle East comes up again. And I'm just like, what is going on? You know, I wonder if part of you wanted to join military so that maybe you could go back on some level, like you wanted to reconnect, do you think? I think so. I mean, because I did see some good side of, I mean, minus my family's situation, I did see, I learned about a whole nother culture, about their way of life, what they value. And some of the things that they value were really wonderful. Mm-hmm. The slower pace of life to enjoy things. So I learned all those things in Iraq. And maybe subconsciously, yeah, there was something to go back. And maybe on my terms this time mm-hmm. versus sort of being forced right. you know, by my father in the situation that I was in. Speaking of your father, what is your relationship like? He caused you all this heartache. Mm-hmm. What is it like now? Oh. It's taken a long time to to really forgive him. I think 
now that I'm an adult, I understand a little bit better about how you can struggle with culture. And I think when you're younger, you don't understand that. So we've, we talk, we're building on our relationship. It's been a long journey, but we're, we're getting there. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like he understands? Do you feel like he understands the kind of wound he caused? I think so. Yeah. I think, I think he does. I think he, I think he's sorry. I think he doesn't really know how to exactly communicate that. I think him just popping up back in my life and trying, I think that's his way of doing it. I think I've also come to the realization you only have two parents in this world, whether you like him or not. You just have two parents and it is what it is. And how do you feel looking back? How do you feel this experience has shaped you or prepared you or impacted you today? Um, I think it's shaped who I am. I think too, because, you know, when we went into to Iraq, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to join the military was really to help. And so I felt through my deployments and some of the work I've done, I've been able to really help and also bridge those cultural barriers you know, that we've had. Like when I was deployed, sometimes people would think something's really important. And I'm like, no, that's not important. That's just part of their culture. That's mm-hmm. what they do. Mm-hmm. When you consulted culturally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I mean, I, d- I definitely, I definitely gave my opinion about those things and said, Hey, I mean, this isn't, a, you know, this is a big deal or just doing sort of like regional analysis of like, this is why this is important, you know? And so I think that I felt I was contributing, but I think, you know, some of the other sort of struggles, um, that I've had after that is just, for example, like I still struggle with like, uh, math and English, right? I can't do math and English either. <laughs> I have, to do, I have to do it in Russian. <laughs> See? Like, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I, I struggle. And so when I took the AFOQT for ROTC, um, they thought I did so bad on it the first time. They thought that I like skipped a bubble. And so <laughs> they were like, there's no way because your, your grades are good. Like, there's no way that you would have like, and I was like, so anyways, no, that was like my real answers. <laughs> they were so bad. Um, so I had to like study extra hard and do that. So but it's made me resilient. It's, it, it really has. It's made me go, okay, this is going to really suck. <laughs> this is going to be really hard, but I just have to be persistent and I have to keep on trying. And everything I've ever wanted, I've gotten. And it's just been like old-fashioned hard work and picking myself up. Like we were talking about earlier, you know, sometimes you cry. Sometimes you just, it's a bad situation, but you just go, okay, nope. I got it. I just got to get up yeah. and just move on. So I think that's what's helped me. And then also, you know, the Air Force. I failed the AFOQT and, you know, I was, I was, I thought it was really kind that the commander thought that I had skipped a bubble versus <laughs> that I was an idiot. <laughs> I was like, that's so thoughtful. Like that you think that I skipped a, a, skipped a bubble, but I think I've found people to help me sort of navigate, mm. you know, navigate that system and, you know, there's a waiver for everything. There's always a little loophole. And I think I've just been fortunate enough to to have people who, you know, supported me. But culture can be hard, especially when we're trying to get everybody through one system in the Air Force. The one thing I love about the Air Force is 
you get all these people from across the world, Russia, Iraq, and we all have one mission and we all come together, which is amazing. But sometimes to get us all together, I think can be really tough because of, of cultural differences. And sometimes I think we underestimate just how amazing it is that we come from so many different backgrounds and we can all sit at the same table, think about the same mission and speak the same language. Yeah. Sometimes we underestimate what an amazing achievement that is. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. It, it's absolutely huge. And a lot of times too, I think it takes sometimes other outsiders, I say, or from different cultures to understand. Like they may not understand my culture, but they're like, yeah, I know... I've struggled with something different. Yeah. And they're like, just like when you said, you're like, well, I can't do, I can only do it in Russian, right? Yeah. So yeah. you you may not have the same struggle, but you understand that there's that cultural barrier. And so, um, so yeah. Mm. So do you speak to your family in Iraq now? I do. Mm. Um, I still have family there. Um, unfortunately, I had a family member killed by ISIS with the, the resurgence in 2014. Mm. Mm. And that was really hard. That was, was really tough. It was actually the uncle who drove me to Jordan. Mm. He was killed. And, you know, that was that was devastating. Mm. So it's, it's hard. Do you still feel like your family is threatened? Yeah, I do. I, I feel like it's just, it's, Iraq is still not, not the safest place. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's, It's still tough. I've been lucky enough to have the uncle who was who was unfortunately killed. We were able to get his family get refugee status in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that I do love about our country. Mm -hmm. Here is I have a family member who's killed by ISIS and they got refugee status. And that just makes me happy that they're able to come to America. And so they're, they're, they're here. They've been here for about two years. And, and now they're struggling with the American culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's three girls and so they're like uh we can work with males and i'm like yeah it's perfectly acceptable here mm -hmm. and so they're like I, i i don't know if i can do that mm -hmm. you know so it's funny to see how like when i was over there the things i struggled with and now that they're here in the u.s the things that they're asking about mm -hmm. so you are very passionate about veterans health care and particularly women who are transitioning from the military into the civilian sector can you tell me a little bit about what you do and For all the listeners, we actually were in the same panel with Aliyah just this afternoon, and we talked about innovative technologies and how using technologies to advance different ideas. So I'll just stop here and I'll, I'll let you talk about what you do. Yeah, so I'm very interested in, in helping veterans, and I think I shared today on the panel that we were on is, you know, when I, so, so I was active duty and then went reserve, so when you go from active duty to reserve, You basically have to transition. You have to go through TAP. And when I was going through TAP, it was really hard. When you're transitioning out of the military, it's just tough, whether you're separating or retiring. And I was doing my research on people who transition and found out that women veterans have a 60% higher chance of committing suicide than their civilian counterparts. Mm. And I was just like, what? You know, why? Yeah, that like, seems like a really high number. Very high number, right? And that's between like 18 and 34. So I started to peel back that onion of what is going on, looked at all the research. It wasn't just suicide that female veterans were struggling with. It was musculoskeletal issues, homelessness, military sexual trauma, an array of issues that they were facing. 
And I remember I cold called the VA and said, okay, what are you guys doing about this? What, mm-hmm. What's going on? Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we've done a lot of research on it, but we haven't really, like, we haven't really done anything. I'm like, so, okay, so what's the plan? And there was no plan. And you know, I'm just like, you got to be kidding me, right? Mm-hmm. And so this whole team, we worked with the VA to sort of develop this women's health tap pilot. And really what it is, is when you transition, and you separate, we're going to let you know that, hey, these are the healthcare services you can get at the VA. This is how you enroll in the VA. And, you know, by the way, you may be vulnerable to these symptoms. You know, other women have them. And if you have these symptoms, you can go get resources here. And I like to call it like a hot handoff. And so I'm, I'm really passionate about veteran suicide. I've had friends affected by it. And we always talk about these like new technologies. And so I, I was talking today about, you know, how can Amazon know that I like to shop for, you know, cat stuff because mm-hmm. they know I have two cats because I order <laughs> all kinds of cat stuff on Amazon. Well, what if we were to develop an algorithm or a social media thing that would pick up when, you know, somebody had maybe suicidal ideations or they had a, we saw on their Facebook, they were sad. We could reach out to them. And the research is showing that people who do commit suicide, they have a profile pattern on social media of what somebody who's about to commit suicide looks like, whether it's posts that are negative posts and then they increase and then all of a sudden they'll post a picture of like a gun or a knife. And that, not necessarily going to like hurt anybody, but these are the things that they post. We see people who've committed suicide. So I'm trying to develop something along with the VA of can we use those algorithms and that machine learning that Amazon and Facebook already have to sort of catch suicide mm-hmm. and to say, hey, if this person posts five negative things in a row and uses these words, are they at risk for suicide? Do they need some help? I'm trying to figure out how we can use technology. Amazon knows that I like cat stuff. I figure like we can figure out how to identify or sort of maybe prevent suicide or that someone's in need. It's so hard, you know, to balance this idea of free speech and free will and free determination with the desire also to help, mm-hmm. especially when people feel really vulnerable. Yeah. And, you know, the moments when they're Googling how to kill myself, that's the vulnerable moment when we want to intervene and to support people. It's so tough. It is. And I think, I also think sort of the, the game has changed. A lot of people put on social media, like that is... That's the sort of, I see it, that's the new frontier. Yeah. Um, it's not somebody necessarily going to their closest friend to talk to them. Yeah. It's, we're just a society that posts everything on Facebook and that's okay. Um, but I think those are going to be your first signs. That's yeah. going to be your first sort of, you know, we call it like in the military, indications and warning. I think your first indication may be social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we can sort of get at that, I think I, I think we can help. I don't know. I still have a, a long a long way to go with this project, but... Um, What's your vision for the next, say, five years? I think my, my vision for the next five years is to make to make programs and pilots that are really getting after a tangible solution. You know, I think sometimes we talk about all these great ideas, and I read something that is like, hope is not a strategy, and I, I agree. Hope mm-hmm. is not a strategy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what you do. So I just want to make sure we have tangible results in the next five years, and I can show that. And I think there's a balance between being data-driven and there's that human element factor. And there's got to be a balance between that. 
So this was really fun. It was really fun. Thank um, you. Yeah, no, thank you for such a lovely discussion. I have a question that I ask of all of my guests, and that is for those service members who are struggling with tough times at this moment, what are your recommendations? My recommendations, stay persistent. Just believe in yourself. You got to pick yourself up and you can do it. Uh, you really can do it and you have to believe it. It doesn't matter that I've done it or anybody else ahead of me. You have to believe it. You have free will. You have the power to do it. And you can get through it. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anya. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical or psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail dot mil. It's A-N-N-A dot V dot F-E-D-O-T-O-V-A dot mil at mail dot